allegiance to the band. It may perhaps discourage you, and not only your kidney, or infected with this vicious virus, but you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now if you don't mind. Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are 11. Welcome to Movies at Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and today I have two very special co-hosts with me, one of whom is returning to the show, and one of whom is making his Movies at Rock debut, Michael Bagford and John Lamoureux. Hey, guys. Hey, dude. We're going to be talking about the Rush documentary, Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage, which in some ways, I, this episode, I, I would kind of like to do in, in honor of the one and only Neil Peart, who passed away last month. I have to come clean on something right off the bat before we start. I'm pretty new into the Rush world. It was only maybe like two to three years ago when I really started listening to Rush like on a serious level more than just what was on the radio. I'm still a little bit of a Rush novice, so I'm glad that I have two real hardcore fans here to, to kind of guide me through this journey. So <laughs> this is exciting. I would say I'm probably more in the middle. I think uh, I think I sort of bridged this gap between where you are and where Mike is because mm-hmm. um, I think of the three of us, Mike is probably the most diehard. I'm, I am I always think about it. it. Rush fans feel so passionate to me about their love of the band that it, I feel like a poser if I claim <laughs> to be too big of a fan, you know? Yeah. I don't have every album. I don't listen to them constantly, but I do have a lot of affection for them and I do yeah. love them. And so um, I feel like I kind of straddle the line between you two. I love that. So we kind of cover every 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 base. First order of business, I guess, before we get into Rush itself, we'll start with you, John, since, since this is your debut on the show. I usually like to get to know my um, guests. You have a pretty awesome podcast of your own. So I uh, have been hosting a podcast called The Hustle for coming up on five years now. And um, the original idea was that I was really fascinated with how uh, musicians pay their bills. If they had a hit back in 1986, what do they, how do they keep it going? You know, and that what was really that is like? fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you're at nothing for a while and then suddenly you make a ton of money because of this hit and then no one cares about your next album <laughs> and you remain in obscurity forever after that, what is that like? You right. know, what do you do the rest of your life? Absolutely. And like how um, much mailbox money will actually carry you through and exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and the show has evolved a little bit since then. I've been very lucky to have, um, you know, gotten to talk to a lot of really great people. And so yeah, you've had some we, incredible guests on your show. Yeah, thank you. Um, sometimes we talk to people in that situation and sometimes we talk to people who have had lots of success. Mm-hmm. So I um, I really, though, I'm just interested in kind of getting deeper, you know, behind the under the sheets of these people what's Mm -hmm. it really like you know what's your life what were the highs like the lows how do you deal with it how do you feel what are your stories that's kind of it and what's cool especially is that there are people that you know journalist groups and podcasts probably wouldn't knock on their door to get an interview you know i I would imagine Mm -hmm. a lot of these people are are fairly eager to be interviewed and and to talk about you know the 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 past glory days and, and what have you you know yeah, I think um, it's always easiest to go to a person versus a publicist. Publicists can yeah. be horrible. 
Oh, I can only um, imagine. <laughs> they're so rough. Yeah. But um, yes, it, uh, if you can connect one-on-one with somebody through Facebook or their website or whatever, those are always the easy, easy ones. Mm-hmm. It, um, it has gotten easier and in some ways harder. I mean, I, there are so many people I would love to talk to, but they're just too big time for me. Uh, they're yeah. not going to do it, you know? Right. But thankfully we have built a roster where if I'm reaching out to a certain level of person and I send them a link and I say, you probably know a lot of these people, they look and they realize they have. And, mm-hmm. um, and I get a lot of referrals and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's worked out nicely. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, um, it's always kind of a, an exciting time to see, like, who, who do you get this week? <laughs> who, who said yes to John this week, which is really exciting. <laughs> this is just kind of my own curiosity. Over the course of the five years that you've been doing it, have you kind of built a little bit of a name for yourself and that, and that people are being like, oh, yeah, hustle, hustle pod. I know about this. I'd be happy to grant an interview. Or, or is that not really the case? That is a really interesting question. Um, I, I, I don't I would say not probably too much. Mm-hmm. There are, um, as I mentioned, a lot of people thankfully refer me to other people that they've worked with that I would like, that I like, or would want to talk to. Yeah. And I'll see them share it on Facebook and I'll know that I'll see the friend who I had on the show originally like their post about being on the show as well. And I don't know if they connect the dots that way. I, I do think that some of these guys are so used to just doing hundreds of thousands of interviews over the <laughs> yeah. course of their career that they're not paying super duper attention to who yeah. they're talking to. Um, if I'm on the phone with them and like I spoke to Marshall Cro- uh, Crenshaw recently for the oh, second cool. time and he's like, Oh yeah, you're the guy in Denver. And <laughs> I mean, wow. Marshall Crenshaw remembers that he I knows live in who Denver, I am. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, um, but so there's that a little bit, but I don't know. I mean, I think musicians are extremely unique people and I don't, their brains don't work like, normal people's that's, that's true. <laughs> that's I don't true. know. Yeah. <laughs> and Mike Bagford, you are returning this to the third time to the show. And we did last time you were on, we did John and Yoko's Above Us Only Sky, which actually I, I think as of right now is the most downloaded episode. Hey. Really? Yeah. So so congratulations. A little hand clap for that. Good and job, um, Mike. yes. And it was <laughs> I have to, it's kind of funny because um I can't remember if I told you this, but um we when we did that episode we weren't that kind towards it like we didn't we didn't give it like a you know a scathing yeah. review or anything but but we were both kind of like eh about it and and when i posted that this that you know we'd record an episode about it the director of the of that movie liked and retweeted the <laughs> the link Whoa. for the episode i'm like oh okay well i hope he doesn't get upset by what we had to say about the, yeah, the movie there. i know <laughs> so so we'll see i didn't hear anything since then but it was just kind of a, a funny little anecdote but um and the other you, you were also on for tommy about maybe yes, a year and a half ago the, the ken russell extravaganza <laughs> which is really fun to do <laughs> and really fun to talk about because that's 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 an experience so and it's good <laughs> good to have good to have you back for the third time. Third time is the charm, of course, Mike. This is your last time on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you are welcome anytime. Let's get into the band Rush that I'm sure most of my listeners have at least heard of. Let's start with Mike. Since you are probably the biggest fan of all of us, do you have any interesting stories about like how you first discovered Rush, how you get into them, like how long have you been a fan? Um, I would say I've been a big fan of rush for about 17 years it took me a while to actually kind of start liking rush 
Yeah. Um, when I was a younger kid, just kind of hearing them on the radio, um, I was not really as used to instrumentation as I later did when mm-hmm. listening to music. So I always focused on the voice, and Getty Lee's <laughs> voice was uh, a little bit hard for me to digest. Mm-hmm. A Absolutely. Bit. We'll get so, into that a little bit more for sure. <laughs> it's so it's it an acquired taste, as they say. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I mean, as as I've listened to Rush, I actually kind of like Getty Lee's voice now. I think this later, early on in his career, it was a little bit. It was kind of harsh to say the least. Mm-hmm. But I think as the '80s went on, it got more in a deeper range, and actually, it sounds pretty good to me. Actually. I, like Getty Lee's voice now. I have to agree with you with Getty Lee's voice. That was definitely a hang up when I was first listening to them as well. <laughs> what was the first like album or song that that kind of clicked with you? That was like, oh, then maybe not, they're not so bad. <laughs> um, I believe it was watching the Closer to the Heart live uh, <laughs> video that they had for different stages. I was with my cousin-in-law Sean, and we were talking about Rush a little bit, and I said, yeah, it's. Rush is a little hard to, for me to get into because I can't really get into Getty Lee's voice. Um, me and Sean are both drummers, and he was saying, well, Neil Peart is like one of the best of all time drummers. You should maybe try to listen to that more when you hear Rush. And I saw this video, and yeah, he's he's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I really like this instrumentation. Maybe I can give this band a little more... A little more listens. Um, yeah. So I started, uh, I bought Rush Chronicles. That's the one. Is, I, yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> like, if you don't, if you just want one album, I think that would be a, that's a good, good one to have in your collection. If you just want a nice collection of songs. Mm-hmm. I got the Rush and Rio DVD, which was mm-hmm. new at the time. Yeah. And that got me more into the band. And I really wanted to see the Neil Peart instructional dvds that he had out and that really got me into Mm. rush Mm. started getting more into the albums and by the time snakes and arrows came out i was a hardcore fan by that point saw my first rush concert around that time period and i've seen them about five times how was the live experience of actually being there Have have you seen them live john yeah, I've seen them four times. Wow. They, they were all later. Uh, they've all been within the last, you know, since the 2000s. I never yeah. saw them back in like the 80s or 90s or anything like that. But. Mm-hmm. Are they as magnetic live as, as the, the videos make them seem to be like, or, or does it not really do it justice? Is it even better in person? Well, I can give my thoughts on this. Mike has probably has a different one. I feel like my tolerance level for Prague can be really low sometimes yeah, yeah because i like hooks you know yeah. and to me sometimes and listening to rush feels like work mm-hmm. and um <laughs> and that goes that's true for a lot of bands that's true yeah. for early genesis that's yeah. true for yes you know i'm, I'm, I'm with you john i'm with you yeah. john yeah and so i have to be in the mood to put in that work you know, it's not something I'm going to throw some of their tracks. I mean, that's what was so great about that Chronicles compilation. So all the hits, you throw it on and it's like, this yeah. is great. Boom, boom, boom. But if you want to go deeper and you got to throw on a, a, an actual album or CD, you're going to have to, you know, there's going to be some times where you're like, what's happening here? I, I don't even recognize the the hooks anymore, you right. know? And so a concert experience, as as exciting as it can be, 
my take on a lot of prog bands is that they're performing for other musicians. They're perform yeah. it's the other musicians who are like, wow, look at what Neil's doing up there and look at Alex's Alex's fingers on this one. You know, they're the ones who are truly blown away. And um and people who appreciate prog. But I so I I, I mean, I like seeing them live a lot. There's no question these are three of the greatest musicians that ever lived, and they're all in the same band. <laughs> but um, that doesn't mean that every second of their career do I find, like, thoroughly enjoyable. Right. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, Rush for me is kind of a, a almost like the redheaded stepchild of the whole prog movement in the in the sense that they're probably the only ones where I think they actually got better in their later 80s pop era than the than, yeah. than their initial 70s incarnation like i personally wouldn't say that about like genesis or yes or you know a lot of those other bands that kind of had their second wind in the in the 80s they even said it in the film that that was kind of when they hit their stride and they really felt like they you know got traction mm -hmm. as a band and and that's when the doors kind of blew open for them i can understand that they're true purists think that they start you know that's and it there were guys in the movie that said so that yeah. once it got to synthesizers in the 80s and stuff that's when they sort of started to tune out that's when it becomes more palatable for me that's mm -hmm. when i'm like yes these are songs they're five four or five minutes i can put them on i love them you know subdivisions grace under fire whatever it might be and um that i can hook into yeah the 20 minute solos and strangiato and stuff like that's all amazing it's amazing but you don't put it on for fun. You can really connect a direct line from them to Yes, obviously, mm -hmm. which is a band, as most people know, that I, I loved. And and I'm not like a super huge prog person, but for some reason, they've always just kind of clicked with me. And, and I think maybe part of the reason that that I have such an like in, such an affection for Yes is because I, I grew up with them. I they were mm -hmm. that music was part of my childhood. To me, it it seems weird to compare the two of them because even though they're so directly influenced by each other, they still feel so different because i have such a different emotional bond with the two bands mm. you know mm. again comparing him to like john anderson who also is a very very high-pitched mm. falsetto-y prog rock voice i guess the thing with getty is i found him a little bit more shrill um and you know and, I, and i'm not this is not a criticism it's just it's more of a, a metal voice and that wasn't what, what my palate was mm. used to and i had to i had to mm -hmm. warm up to that mike do you have a preference between early and later rush actually my sweet spot for rush is from 1978 to 1984 yeah mm. um yeah do I'm... like some of the 70s stuff but like john said it can get a little you can get a little bit bogged down with some of the 20 minutes and some of the complexities of it yeah. i think hemispheres was like the height of that for sure and i think it's like it's a great complex record i give it a 10 out of 10 but i also give permanent waves a 10 out of 10 moving mm -hmm. pictures a 10 out of 10 signals a 10 out of 10 grace under pressure a 10 out of 10 and power windows a 9 out of 10 so wow. I, I really like a pretty good track really record <laughs> Yeah, I really liked it when they actually kind of pared it down a bit and got more commercial. So yeah, I'm and it, it's really unusual to, to to think that about a band. You know, most bands are they they lose something when they take the radio route, but but for for some mm -hmm. reason it really worked for them. I don't think the long big scale epics was really something that came naturally to them. Something about it just didn't really have the same smoothness that a lot of their contemporaries did in in that setting of music. I guess. There's a line in the movie that I wrote down that I really liked, and I think it was uh, Getty that said it. And he said that he, when he was talking about, you know, I bless our fans' hearts every day. And um, 
or maybe it was Neil. Anyway, there was a line by one of them in the movie that said that our fans were as curious about where we were going as we were. Uh, and yeah. I think about that a lot because I, what you're saying resonates to some degree. I feel like in the beginning they were seeing how far they could push themselves. And then once they did it, they didn't need to keep doing it. And mm-hmm. then they, it, it's a real testament to them kind of following their muse. And so, yeah, you know, maybe if they had, they decided, okay, we did the 20 minute songs. That's fun. Let's try synthesizers, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, and then after that, it was like, okay, no more synthesizers. Let's try harder guitars. And then, uh, you know, whatever, deeper lyrics, whatever it might be. And, um, so they were kind of transforming and shape-shifting along the way. And they're, uh, and it was, it was not a planned out thing for them. They were just following their muse and their, their fans loved them for it. The first thing I remember ever hearing from Rush was the, um, distant early warning and mm-hmm. not understanding it, thinking it was so <laughs> weird and, uh, who would like this? How does a band like this even get on MTV? I don't understand. They're weird looking. <laughs> what is this? What is this? This is what you carve out time for. Are you serious? You know? <laughs> and, um, I remember just kind of going around tra- Oh, here's that weird, terrible video again. I feel like but, that's a common um, reaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's fun because it was one of those things where deep inside I kind of liked it because I didn't understand it. It was weird, but it your natural reaction when you're 12 or whatever I was was to be like, oh, that sucks. So <laughs> that like time stands still and um, that section right there is I was paying attention and I really liked those songs. I didn't pay attention enough where I wanted to go buy a Rush album that came later Um but I didn't mind what I was learning. And then I got the Chronicle thing in, in high school. And that's all you need for a long time until you decide you want to go deeper. I think Rush is, is like the epitome of like a love them or hate them group. People are very passionate on both sides of the coin. So, and I get it. But once you kind of get past the, the initial shock, I think there's a lot. There's like a, there's a real treasure chest of amazing work in their discography. All right. I always like to do this. I'm going to put you guys both on the spot. How about top three Rush songs? Mike, you knew that. Mike, you knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah, I kind of knew in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. Of course, I have to go. Do you want me to go first? <laughs> do you want to do like I... number three, number three, number three? We'll like go in a circle. Sure, sure. I actually had a feeling you might say this, and I <laughs> thought about it ahead of oh, time. Oh, okay. So I'm ready. Actually, I mean, I already know my number one. All right, then, yeah. I, um, John, why don't you kick it off? Uh, number three, I think I'm going to go animate from counterparts. I'm a big fan of track ones. Mm -hmm. If you can, if you have a good track one, I'm hooked for a while and I'll forgive a lot. And that's a great album. But that song kicks it off so nicely, and it rocks. Yeah, and uh, it's and it's driving, and it's exciting, and it doesn't get too weird for too long to take to distract from the power of the song. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think number three for me is going to be anime. That's great. Okay, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, from watching the film uh, this last week, um, Red Barchetta, man, that's a killer. Sunlight on grime, but blur of the landscape, 
really nice driving song. I just, it's, I love it. It just rocks. I mean, when I was watching it, when it came on the documentary, I wrote down the note that just said, man, this rocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you stole my number three, so I'm going to have to pick a different one. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. I think I'm going to go with Xanadu. I am the I'd say it's hands down the, the best of their extended epics. I, I just think I find it very powerful and very um, atmospheric and, and re- really interesting. And Neil's drumming in that one is particularly precise and powerful and interesting. I like it. How about number twos? Okay, number two for me is, uh, is probably Time Stand Still. I let my skin get too thin. I'd like to pause. I think that's a really great pop song and it would have been a great pop song for anybody, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a great rush version of a pop song, which is not something they did all that often, but I would love it if that was Van Halen or if that was Whitesnake or if that was Asia or yes, or whoever in 1987 that was doing that same kind of thing, I would have dug it. And I just think that's a bulletproof song. Mike, how about, do you have a number two? Uh, my number two is La Villa Stragnato. Ah, <laughs> uh, that was a, that was in the running. <laughs> yeah. That's when I think of badass instrumentals. That's the first one to come to mind. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit basic. So my number two is maybe what I consider maybe the biggest earworm in their catalog mm-hmm. for me. The one that always gets lodged in my brain, and it's free will. are going to have the same number. I have a feeling too. Maybe. Well, we'll see. I okay. I'll just say it. My number one is subdivisions. Mine too. Yeah, and mine was. I I almost picked that too. (laughs) We'll Well, call a three-way subdivision number one.
and because I feel like that's the song that nowadays is kind of rising to the top. I mean, yeah. any any discussion about Rush and people are flocking to that one. Whereas maybe in previous generations, it was Tom Sawyer. It was closer to the heart or limelight or something like that. For whatever reason, people our age are are raising subdivision to that prime spot. And I think it's probably because, like it or not, if you're whatever kind of a Rush fan you are, the synth lines in the in that song are so intense yeah. and yet kind of beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I don't they I was thinking about it today. The music sounds like it's for a sci-fi movie, but the the lyrics sound like it's for American Beauty. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't they shouldn't go together, and yet they do. There's something about the deep, dark resonance in those synth lines that speaks to the lost soul that's relating to the lyrics. So they shouldn't go together, but yet they do, and you just feel them so strongly. I, that song is a masterpiece. Yeah, that you, you said that so beautifully. You hear that synth line; it's almost like this warm blanket that covers you. Yes. But then, but then the lyrics come, and it, it kind of just rips it away from you. But but you're still captivated by it. Everything, you know, it's it's that's it. It's brilliant. I, um, it, that's a really interesting point about it, kind of being the new signature Rush song. Because yeah. interestingly, that's a song that I had known for years, years and years and years. I'd heard it on the radio, and I actually for the longest time didn't even know it was a Rush song. Mm-hmm. And it kind of blew my mind when I found I was like, that's, that's a Rush song? I think our generation grew up listening to the same, like, 40 songs on classic rock radio. <laughs> and the only... The same 40 that, that are still on classic rock radio? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly, you know? And because of that, we got Limelight and uh, Spirit of Radio and Tom Sawyer, you know, wet, just drilled into our head for years and years and years. And then... Everything was democratized with iTunes. You can have whatever you yeah. want. You can listen to whatever you want as often as you want, mm-hmm. you know? And suddenly it's like, well, now, wait a minute. I like those songs, but it's the subdivisions one that's really knocking me out right now. Why am I not hearing that? And then enough people rise up behind that to make that the thing. And then it sort of becomes the new calling card for the generation. Do you guys have a favorite album? I'll go first. I, I think mine is probably Grace Under Fire, just because mm-hmm. that's the one that was the first one that I started to kind of perk up to. Yeah. Um, I will admit to me, uh, and I feel bad saying this, there's not a perfect Rush album for me. Yeah. Just because each one has something on it that's kind of difficult and um, that I respect more than I enjoy. And mm. so there's not an ideal perfect Rush album for me personally, although a lot of them are great. Um, I think my favorite moment is uh, Signals. Oh, yeah. It's just, Deep cut. I think it's just like the... It's just the perfect blend of that synthesizer sound and the rock sound that they've been known for. And, I mean, it has subdivisions. I think it's a 10 out of 10 album, even though I already said that four other albums have that same status with them. Yeah. you know, but, I mean, I don't think every album is perfect. I mean, there's some that that period between, like, 1989 and 2002 was... It was kind of like they had some good tracks on them, but there was still some stuff like, yeah, I can, I'm a little lukewarm on. And... Mm-hmm. As much as I love Subdivision, Signals is an album that I feel like I just need to listen to more. Like I'm not that familiar with it. That might dethrone my favorite album, which is actually Farewell to Kings. Oh, yeah. really? I know. That's an interesting pick. It is kind of an interesting pick. And I, I was going to pick Permanent Waves initially, but then I, I went back like two days ago and listened to Farewell to Kings. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give it to this one. It needs more mm. love. And I and I like 
nearly all the songs on it. So good. Do you even like Madrigal? Mm, that's one we don't have to talk about. But <laughs> I made that comment. There's a, there's at least one filler song on every Rush album. So <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Other than that, I, I think it's it's very solid. Why don't we get into the the movie? Interestingly, it came out in 2010 when I first. Wow. was watching yeah. it a couple of years ago. I didn't. I, I was thinking, I was like, how old is this movie? Because mm-hmm. I assumed it came out maybe like around the time that they got into like the Hall of Fame, which is I think mm-hmm. 13, 14. Mm-hmm. But no, it's older than that. And I think it's kind of a gold standard rock and roll documentary. I totally agree. I, I, uh, I'm going to gush all over this movie, but I, um, I don't know whether to blow my entire wad right now. But I will <laughs> say... And I, I want to leave room for Mike to give his thoughts, too. I'm really curious about it. But, I, yeah, I think this is one of the finest rock documentaries ever made. And, in fact, I was thinking about because I watched it twice. I had seen it many times before, but I watched it uh, twice getting ready to talk to you. And, to me, the star of the movie is actually the director, Sam Dunn. Oh, I, yeah. um, I think he made something very special with this. And I'll talk – I'll get in deeper about – what what those things are that I think make this movie so special. But mm-hmm. um, yes, I think it's one of the finest rock docs ever. Yeah, I, I am there with you. How about you, Mike? Oh, I definitely agree. Like you said, Sam Dunn, he's kind of, he's a pretty gifted documentarian and he's he's gone on to do like Hip Hop Evolution, the Netflix mm-hmm. series and, and things like that. So he's, he's he has quite a resume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I just... Well, I'll just get into it. Uh, I'll just talk about it because I can't. Yeah, I can't hold back do. any longer. Please do. <laughs> the, thing, the thing that I, um, this is one of those movies, and I'll be honest, I probably like the movie more than I like Rush, listening to the music. I oh. love this movie, and I think one of the reasons why, it, like when it's over, I'm ready for it to start all, all over again, mm. because there the inherent decency of these three guys is so overwhelming that I miss them when the movie is over, uh, yeah. and I. I love their kindness and their goodness and their decency. And even if they're total pricks behind the scenes, they you don't feel that way when you're watching it. And something that I found really interesting this time, especially, I thought, why do I feel this way? There's, um, I think one of the reasons is that because they're all, I don't know if soft-spoken or mellow is the right word, but they're contained. They're they're composed. and They're very put together. Like yes. They seem like they'd be extremely approachable. And easy to talk to and, and, you know, as much as they, they were commenting on Neil's sort of um, ambivalence towards, you know, fans and stuff like that, I still feel like he would be somebody who would, you could easily have a decent conversation with. Yes, I have a lot of thoughts about that, too. Yeah. I, I'll get into you later. But I just feel like because they're so composed, the, they are, it's compelling. They're, they're drawing you in to their kind of more dial down frequency and mm-hmm. it's not a and so when the music pops in in the movie it makes an even bigger impression because it's not wall-to-wall loud rock music you know behind playing behind every comment every everything yeah and uh so it's this playing with with sort of silence and then rock music and the dynamic between the two that's creating this really comfortable space where these guys look their very best their music sounds even better because it's bringing you out of that comfortable space instead of like jarring you out of it, you know? Yeah. And um, I just, I think it's such a masterclass in dynamics, the way that this movie plays out. And that's a Sam Dunn thing. And I'm really, I'm really amazed that he managed. To, I don't even know if he meant to do that, 
But that's what I feel when I watch it. And on, on paper, it seems like it shouldn't work because, like you said, they're so contained and so reserved. And the music has a tendency to be a little on the sometimes even aggressive, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and in your face and flashy. And so on paper, it seems like those two should be at odds with each other, but they do sit very comfortably together. Very much so. As far as it, it is like the mechanics of the movie goes, I think it's the pacing is perfect. Like we don't spend too much mm-hmm. time on one on one topic or one or one chapter as the movie's divided into chapters. Um, mm-hmm. like, it, like I was thinking as I was watching it this last time, if you compare it to something like George Harrison's Living in the Material World, which is wonderful, it almost it takes its time too much and it, it becomes mm, yeah. a, at times a bit of a, a slog. I hate to say it. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Wh- whereas this is like, it's more like it really moves at a clip, but not in a way mm-hmm. that you feel like you're rushing. <laughs> good um, point. Oh, good one. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> so the pacing was very appropriate, and it, and it, but it still was able, like very comprehensive at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so that good I point. found to be very impressive. When I saw this movie, um, almost. Uh, committed my fandom or resolidified it. I was, I've always, as I said earlier, I've never been like a 10 out of 10, but seeing this movie put me, took me up a notch. When you watched it, were you thinking, I'm not, there's so many questions left unanswered, or are you satisfied with what you're getting? Like as a big Rush fan, I thought everything I was satisfied with. Like I okay. didn't really have like a bunch of questions. Like why didn't they cover this year or I mean, they kind of went beyond a little bit. Like, I'm surprised that they were able to get Neil Peart to talk about that tragic period in his life mm-hmm. when he lost his wife and his daughter mm-hmm. within about a year. I mean, it's just, I think it's a world-class documentary. I, it just, it solidified my fandom more. I think it's a good, I think it's a good film to bring other people into. Like, yeah. if you're not a big fan of Rush, you might be a fan of Rush after watching that. I think if nothing else, you will enjoy the experience of watching that movie. I don't know if you'll come away wanting to buy a Rush album. Like I watched it with, I showed it to my wife. I paid actually to see it in the theater. And then I showed it to my wife later and she was like, yeah, that's okay. That doesn't mean she wants to listen to Rush, but as a viewing experience, it's very pleasurable because they're such nice guys. And Mm -hmm. I think this movie really did a great job of solidifying their legacy because they they, they have always kind of had a little bit of a shaky reputation as far as like their pop culture status goes you know a lot of people you know they were never really seen as cool and never really respected all that much outside of the people who really knew their music but i think this movie changed that for a lot of people going back to like their personalities i i found neil was the one that really for me far and away was the most interesting member of the group his story to me was was the most captivating you know, I was um, while I was watching it, I was thinking one of the great losses, not only of losing Neil, but of his, um, you know, sort of not wanting to be in the spotlight is that we met. I feel sort of short changed or cheated in that. I didn't get to hear more from him over the years. He's such an he's such a uh, thoughtful and sensitive and articulate person. Mm-hmm. And when he would talk about things, I would just get so dragged in. I remember when he was talking about Caress of Steel, and he was saying, and we were so sad because we were so in love with what we'd done. Mm-hmm. And the way he says that, he could have said, man, we loved what we did. But he didn't say it that way. He said it like, he said it in a way that endears you to him. And he says, we were so in love with what we'd done. Right, like devoid the, of any of the hubris and that would yes. normally come with that, yeah. 
that's it. And I thought, man, I wish that I had been seeing hours upon hours of interviews with this guy. I wish that he was nominating March of the Penguins. I wish that he <laughs> was the voice of, you know, Starbucks. Or I just, that voice is so comforting. And the way that he expresses himself, it's unlike any other rock star, you know? Oh, it's completely. just. It, cut, it shoots directly to your heart. He's, his decency is overwhelmingly apparent on all three of them, really, but especially him. Yeah, he really stood out for me. And he was the one, I think, for everybody who kind of was the most elusive member just because he was, didn't put himself out there as much. Yeah. And yeah. maybe it was just simply because I, I learned more about him than any of the, the, either of the other two. But, yeah, I, I just really connected to him a lot, you know, even though he was the new guy. <laughs> right, as, as they mentioned a few times. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was gonna say, John, if you want to hear more from Neil, those instructional DVDs that he has. I mean, because he talks a lot, like about his philosophy, just on music, and it's just like he's great just to hear talk. He's, I think he was like one of the best narrators I've heard ever. Like, it's so funny. I didn't even know those existed until you mentioned them in this conversation. And that does sound fascinating to me. I don't even care <laughs> to play the drums, but I could just sit and put that on like on YouTube in the background and it would kind of soothe me. Like he was talking about his little baby soul being soothed, you know, on the <laughs> on his motorcycle. And I thought, I so relate with you, Neil, because I want to be soothed by my little baby soul needs your voice, you know? <laughs> I imagine somebody by now probably has uploaded them to YouTube. I hope so. I got to find them. Yeah. <laughs> if not, somebody's got to get on that. If anybody's listening yeah. and has that, get going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but the other two guys, too, like you said, were equally endearing. And I wonder if maybe having, you know, being north of the border um, has something to do with it. You know, in the country of Canada tends to be a little bit insular. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that, that maybe could lend itself a little bit as well. Just because it's a different kind of, they're getting a little different perspective of at least like stardom and, and music and fame that, you know, uh, people from the United States do. Because it's a little, I feel like it's a little bit more... Um, uh, more of a put yourself out there culture. I don't know. I'm just mm -hmm. theorizing, but it's in, it's fascinating. Well, Canadians have a reputation for being nicer, and sometimes cliches are true for a reason. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of apparent in those guys. They weren't partiers. They weren't. They were just a different kind of people following their own muse, and it worked. Right. I was even charmed by Alex Lifeson being a bratty teenager. To his parents. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that too. Yeah, I, I was, first of all, amazed that they had footage of that. Yes. <laughs> like, who taped Alex Lifeson being sassy to his parents? Like, whoever did that, kudos. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's also, like, adorable in a weird way. It is. It was so fun. I don't want to, I don't want lots of money. I don't want to be driving down the street yeah. in a nice car and people saying, there goes Alex with all his money. And I thought, what a, he's just such a typically naively idealistic teenager yes. in that, you know, and uh, who who would have ever guessed that he would become what he was, but that was so quite well funny. For him. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And Getty, too, like, I didn't realize his tragic history mm -hmm. when he would, like, how much he had gone through as a kid and, and how he came out really, I mean, unscathed by everything mm -hmm. that he went through. Mm -hmm. uh, like, one of the scenes that I liked is when uh, 
Getty and Alex are in that diner and the waitresses recognize it's Getty and she doesn't really even know that Alex is at the table. And right. Getty's even that saying, was, hey. That was a cute man. moment. Yeah. It's like, no, nah, I don't really want it. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yeah, I'm sorry. This is the last one, I promise. <laughs> the last you know, he's last in the band, too. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> As Michael knows, I hate the Smashing Pumpkins. I enjoyed every... <laughs> hey, hey. I oh, do. there was I a it. lot of Billy Corgan in this movie. I enjoyed every word he said. Yeah. I felt like of all, the com- yes, of all the commentators, he hit right to the point yeah. every single time saying the exact right thing. I could have sat, I could just sit back and listen to Neil t- Neil's voice and Billy talking about Rush for hours and hours, every word he said was exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yep, I would tune out as soon as he started singing "Rush." Exactly. Could, yes, <laughs> with that nasal screech. But <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was also a lot of Jack Black in this movie too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, let the groans begin. <laughs> he was okay, a- but he he just I I could. He just had that very like affected way of speaking, and it's just like just just say what you want to say. You don't have to make yeah. it a production. I don't know. That's my thoughts. <laughs> I was starting to think that too. I was thinking. I wonder who the real Jack Black is. Yes. I wonder if Jack Black could yeah. strip away the persona of Jack Black and just be Jack, and just what that guy would have to say. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it got it, it distracted from the message of what he was trying to say. Yeah, he's like always at like 120 percent. Like I'm Jack Black. Right, right. <laughs> but I mean, it, I mean, his respect for Rush is, you know, it's very commendable. But you know, <laughs> that's just Agreed. his persona. Yeah. I know that Neil had this reputation of being kind of the weird guy, especially maybe when he was a kid. His parents thought he was weird, and in the old home footage, he did look a little socially awkward. But maybe he was a, one of these people that just kind of grew into himself because I didn't find him socially awkward as an adult at all. No, you know? no. And so I'm really curious what he must have been like as like an 18 year old or however old he was when he joined the band, because um, I didn't find him to be strange in the slightest. I thought he was very it was a nice breath of fresh air, you mm-hmm. know, his articulateness. So I don't know. That was different to me. That might play into his um, into how he felt about the fans you know or how he i don't want to say treated them Mm. but in in his lack of interaction with fans i wonder if that is connected to that in some way maybe yeah kind of a social awkwardness one of my favorite lines in the movie is when zach wilde is talking about the long songs and he he (laughs) he's air guitar and he looks back and he goes we did write this didn't we yeah like we someone put this down i thought that was so funny because that's exactly right and when stephen colbert eventually is like were you ever influenced by yourselves at the beginning of a song because it was so long that you were calling back on your early and i thought that's so perfect but zach wilde's line especially was so funny yeah and so dead on you know like yeah he's speaking for everybody with that one Mm -hmm. and also the uh amount of shade that they threw at all the synth um Uh, (laughs) all the synth okay we gotta talk about that yeah i'm curious what you thought about that mike part that part mike because um, were you, I can't remember if you, if we already touched on this, but were you turned off when they turned Cynthia or were you okay with that? I was completely fine when they turned Cynthia. Now they got to a point where it got a little bit too much mm. around the time of Ultra Fighter came out. 
Yeah. But I mean, I always like the simp. So I kind of find some of the other guys in the film when they're like, oh, I jumped off on the simp's guy. Like, they're kind of being wusses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did think that was a really uh, interesting point. And it's always stuck with me, even from the very first time I saw the movie, when Alex was saying, you know, why am I looking for space in this band? Why? I'm the guitar player. Why am I trying to find a place for myself yeah. here over these synthesizers? And I thought that was that was a really insightful way of talking about what it must be like in that band to, you know, everyone deserves to shine. If we're a true mm-hmm. three piece, everybody, everyone's going to get a piece of the pie on this. Yeah. But Alex feels, you know, kind of edged out. And I could feel I could see that even though I really like the music they made at that time. Yeah. And it, it was the 80s. It was. <laughs> That's, it was. It was kind of what it was all about in that era. It was funny seeing Getty Lee kind of reminisce on as to why they decided to, to go that route. He sort of agreed that, yeah, maybe it was a little bit much, but. You know, no regrets. Well, and then he throws a little bit of shade at Alex when he says, you know, and then Alex has all his pedals, his synthesizers, and <laughs> yeah. you realize, you know, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe that was just sort of a little bit of a tense period, but they made it through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't long after that that, that um, Neil had went through his, his tragedy. I'm trying to think when that, I think that was the late that 90s. That was the late 90s. 90s. Okay. 97 after the Test for Echo tour. Okay. That's mm-hmm. incredible that he did that. He did that cross continental motorcycle trip, you know. How much do you wish any one of us were wealthy enough that we could take four years and just <laughs> ride on a motorcycle around yeah. the entire country, basically? You know? Can Canada like down through Mexico. Yeah. And just staying at little motels and what have you. That that's yes. wild. That is heaven to me. Yep. Never and getting why? recognized once. Why did I have kids? They just ruined everything. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know? You, you, make sure they know that. You know, I could have gone on a yeah, motorcycle trip because if it weren't for you guys. <laughs> oh, believe me. I let them know every day. Oh, good. You guys ruined my life. No. <laughs> I'm curious, Mike, maybe you know this. Was the dismissal of John Rutsey really as kind of clean cut as it was depicted in the movie Mm. i've never been entirely sure they said it you know they kind of leave it up to health reasons and that might be true but do you know what really went on there and do you know what any kind of fallout do you know if john resented them or what happened after all that like i haven't really heard too much on john rutsey's side of things i mean they don't really talk about that much i never really got like a clear-cut reason of why that didn't work out Okay. I never have either. And you would think that story would be out there. You'd think John Rutsey would have written a book. You know, I'm the Pete Best of Rush (laughs) and I got a story to tell. Let me tell you about it. You know, he could have capitalized on that. He never did. And I've always wondered, you know, is that because maybe it's not that big of a deal or was he done dirty? I've always wondered. I know it's hard to say because they're they're such a tension free band for the most part. Right. Maybe it is kind of a non story. Yeah, maybe. It how, might how just been, yeah. It might just been musical differences or like the health problems. I mean, it never really got a sense like they hated each other's guts, but mm. might just not worked out for him. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Maybe maybe we can maybe we can get him on um, Hustle Pod. He's uh, dead. Otherwise, yeah, he's, I would. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> that's an issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, he'd be the ideal guest if, I, if he were still alive. <laughs> 
John, tell me what really happened. Come on, don't hold back. Hustle exclusive. That's right. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's that that would make it to, a little more challenging. Right now, John, when are you gonna get Stuart Sutcliffe on there? Well, I think I I touched on this a little. He is he the dead one? Isn't he the one in Stephen Dorff played in the? In yeah, Batman? he died in nineteen sixty-two. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Well, I thought I because what Pete Best is still around. Yeah, I should just man, if I could just exhume old dead people to come on my show. <laughs> there are so many I want to talk to. You know, Neil Peart. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a cold shower of reality right I there. Know. <laughs> I didn't even do that to, to bring it back home, but yeah, actually, he, he would be like top of my list of people that I would want after after this film. Yeah. Like he really yeah. like, I mean, I haven't really even. I don't think I've seen any other interviews that he's done outside of you know when they were on Colbert. Mm-hmm. I I feel like he didn't grant very many interviews. No, no. I mean, there's there's some interviews out there if you look on YouTube. Are there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've done a lot of Canadian interviews. Mm, yeah. So. I thought it was very cool how they divided the film into chapters. It felt made it feel organized. It gave the movie a little more focus, I thought. Yeah, the whole. Um, what was the? I'm curious about this. Let's let's get to the dark side here for a second. Okay. What part of the movie drags? Is there a part of the movie that feels unnecessary? Because hmm. I have an answer, and I'm curious if you guys. I, I need a guys... second to think about this. Do you know? Do you okay. have one, Mike? I, I need a second too. Um, maybe John might actually have the answer. <laughs> okay. So I <laughs> I failed to see what was so compelling about Freddy Gruber and um, that section. And this feels like, you know, sacrilege to say this. And you, there be it anybody knock anything that made Neil a better, more engaged person. But I <laughs> the two of them sitting there, I was just like, that guy's your Yoda. Why? What's so special about Freddy Gruber? Even the way he's drumming, he's just kind of hitting this thing and Neil's sitting next to him, bopping up and down. Yeah, yeah, I feel it. And uh, I'm like, really? You feel that? Yeah, that was a little unnecessary uh, for the the grand scheme of the movie. Yes, it's totally necessary to to include it to tell Neil's story. It's an odd part of his story because it's the part that I don't know that anyone else can relate to. And if Freddie were a more magnetic personality, you'd be like, Oh, I can totally see why you would want to talk to that guy because he would make anyone a better person. But that's not what happened. (laughs) He's a weird old man. That's just talking about a dance and he's talking about motion and he's hitting this little piece of rubber in front of them. And Neil's really feeling it bobbing up and down. I'm just like, wow, that's a glimpse into a world that I have. I know nothing about, you know, <laughs> it's true. And yeah, I appreciate it in the sense that, oh, it kind of changed his drumming style. And yeah, it's important mm-hmm. in that way. I think they just spent a little too much time on it because they, they spent like a good probably five to seven minutes on it. Yeah. And it, it could have easily been whittled down to like two or three Uh, i don't know it's like i said it's a tough call because it's so important to neil obviously sure but it's just uh it's just something that's probably unique just to him i don't know it doesn't ruin the movie or anything it's just a weird like wow that guy Uh okay right all right Right. (laughs) i don't get it but it's not important for me to get it it's important for you to get it yeah (laughs) do you have an answer yet mike or, or uh, that might be it. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see maybe why they included just like the show that like they might be the greatest musicians, but they're humble enough that they can mm-hmm. try to improve on what they're doing. But I mean, I can see that being excised from the film mm-hmm. a bit. I mean, there was some stuff in the deleted scenes that they could have added over that maybe mm-hmm. like I, we're uh, we're uh getty and alex are driving around their hometown they're trying to find the first gig that they played and they end up going to the wrong church oh really i thought they was that i thought in the movie they went to the right church and it was down in that basement they did but in the in the special features they end up going oh. to a church and they're like uh, was this the auditorium? They get lost and they have to go to the yeah, heard about floors that. And like, <laughs> oh, I've the never, one. They finally go to the right one. Got it. I've never seen the special features. I bet those are great. There, they had a, there was a lot that made the cutting room floor. I think wasn't there like a like a, a good yeah, couple 12, hours worth of stuff, right? Uh, there's a uh, twelve minutes in the lodge, which is a great sequence. I could watch a two hour film of them just chit chatting it up. Absolutely. In Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you, now, Mike, do you own the um, the DVD or the Blu-ray? I own the Blu-ray. Okay, I watched it on Netflix. So did I. Yeah, which is really it's amazing that they have it there. As far as for me, things that dragged, we kind of touched upon it already, but I, I personally could have done with a little bit fewer of the celebrity commentators kind of going back mm. to the Jack Black thing. Little much. <laughs> mm. I really didn't care about Kurt Hammock, you know, of Metallica. Yeah. You know, I mean, not yeah, that I don't not, respect him as a musician, but it's, what's that? I said, let's not get down the Metallica. Right? I know. Sorry to bring, sorry to bring <laughs> that up. About ticket, the ticket <laughs> stuff. Oh, I, I, let, let's not even go there. <laughs> let's not bring the party too far down. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> but when those people were on, it kind of slowed the movie down a little bit for me. And mm-hmm. I just was like, okay, get on with it. I want to know more about them. I want to see them more you know this yeah, is like this isn't yeah. about you kirk this isn't about you jack you know this is about yeah. rush and, and not that they made it about them but it, it just i think it was just too much time spent yeah they didn't bother me in fact i think the best the best summary line of the entire movie is matt stone talking about if you're still if you still have a problem with rush then you're just an old dickhead because <laughs> <laughs> because it's been proven over and over again how great they are, and you're the one with the problem. Yeah, it's not Rush, you know. And so when you that line, I think sums up the entire thesis of the movie, which is that this band, like Billy was saying, this band is still here, and you're going to have to deal with it. And yeah. if you can't, you're just an old dickhead, and you need to re- you need yeah. to admit that to yourself. Yeah. You know? You know what I think maybe might have worked better for me in um in thinking about it now? Maybe devoting like a chapter, maybe at, at the beginning or maybe towards the end of just having those, you know, mm. not, not rather than taking them out of the movie, but kind of just keep like clustering them in one part so it doesn't upset the flow of the story. Mm. Okay. I don't know. Just, you know, Sam Dunn, if you're listening next time, you can re-edit the film like that. No, you're sending sam dunn notes yes maybe he'll like this right maybe he'll like and retweet you know the link for this so maybe (laughs) that's great uh okay let me ask you a couple questions number one Mm -hmm. do we think alex leipson has hair plugs (laughs) i'm gonna vote yes do you okay yeah Uh, i'll just say yes to be cool but i don't really i don't really know if he does or not okay okay (laughs) Because 
you know, I mean, he's got the crown, and then when he turns around, his hair is completely bald, right. or his head is completely bald, except for the tuft in the front mm-hmm. that keeps the illusion. By the way, that guy struggled with hair, like, the entire span of the... Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Yeah, hair is never his uh, strong suit. No. no. Well, he didn't have the raccoon hair that got had, like, <laughs> Right. <laughs> for that time period where he looked like Solu from Commando. Yeah. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah. I just I uh I thought I wonder if that if he has plugs, you know? I can't tell for sure. Yeah, I'm gonna guess um, that he does. Okay. <laughs> Another part, and Mike, maybe you're the expert on this. When they were talking about making Caress of Steel, Getty had alluded to them being high the whole time. And they've never struck me as a drug band. I do think all three of them smoke, um, I don't know if they smoke weed or whatever, but, and I think maybe Alex has had some issues with alcohol over the years, if I remember correctly, but I don't have that locked down. Do you know for sure? Are they, you know, is there any drama related to drug use or anything like that in the background? I mean, if there was any drama to drugs, I think we would have known about by now. Um, I think they mostly just did pot. Yeah. I mean, I never really heard of them having like a cocaine problem or. Right. right. But I have seen footage where it's like, it seems like Alex might have been doing coke at the time, but. Okay. I, I got, I, for some reason, I have it in my mind that he might have been an alcoholic or had trouble with it for a while. And, um, but I'm not entirely sure. I know that he got, arre- he and his son got arrested a few uh-huh. years ago for like, you know, beating up a cop or something when they were drunk. I don't remember the exact story, but it was something like that. I wonder if it's one of those things where maybe they it fell by the wayside when they got married and had kids and whatnot. At yeah, least that, for like okay. Getty and Neil. Right. Okay. So that was another question I have. Do we know, I was trying to look this up. Do we know that other than Neil's wife passing away, that all three of them were married to the same person the whole time. They've been with one person. They're not married to, to the, same the same person. Right. <laughs> right. Same wife. right. right. Okay. <laughs> they all share a wife. Yeah. That's right. Brother, if brother, husband. If there was in there, I would know this right. <laughs> growing up. Yeah. No, I think so. They certainly didn't get into it into the movie. They seem like they're relatively uh, put together. So, the, you know, the, yeah, the drama free people, but that's the word right. I was trying to say. Well, adjusted people. So it does seem like in some of the pictures that Neil has a bit of a gin blossom nose. <laughs> yeah. And like when they, in fact, when they got inducted in the hall of fame, his, it, it was almost like he looked like Bozo, just this <laughs> bright red yes. gin blossom nose. And yes. so I've, I've wondered if he like, you know, sometimes that's alcohol related. Sometimes it's not, I guess. Oh, yeah. And so I've always wondered if that was a thing, too. Like, he, because, um, I mean, either they are as decent and humane as they seemed in that movie, or there's a little bit of a dark side there that just was, you know, cut out or not not dwelled on. And so I just was curious if, uh, you know, if anyone knew. If I mean, I guess I, I wouldn't entirely blame him in, the, you know, having faced, having dealt with what he dealt with. In sure. the, you know, the last third of his life, you know, if, if he did fall into that a little bit, it wouldn't really surprise me. And I wouldn't entirely fault him for it either, you know, because no. it, he went through a lot. It's amazing how pretty drama free band made such a compelling movie, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and and if that was the case that he hit the bottle or what have you, that they chose to cut it and it still, you know, made a compelling story. Yeah, it's interesting you say that their decency is what makes them so compelling, at least yeah. to me. Yeah, that, for that movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. 
Uh, going, I, I got to throw this out there. Going back to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, what did you guys think of Alex Lifeson's speech? <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen it, Mike? Uh, it, was, it was a little too much. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little too much. Mm-hmm. Especially for him to carry on as long as he did. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think the audience was starting to get a little agitated. Like if he did like 30 seconds of it or something like that, that would have been fine. But to do it for that long, it's that's a bit too much. Yeah, and you're oh. kind of walking a tightrope of, you know, are you being just kind of tongue-in-cheek or are you being like straight-out disrespectful, you know? <laughs> and he, yeah. he doesn't seem like that type of person, but, I mean, in, in that context, it came off a little bit. It didn't come off that great. I, uh, I've gone back and forth on that because at the time, yes, I thought it was weird. But in a way, it's just about the most punk rock thing you could do, <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah. And even though, you know, punk rock is not part of Rush's, you know, definition very much, really. But I thought not too many people, punk or not, have the cojones <laughs> to go up and do that to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he did. Yeah, and so true. it, uh, you know, was it, was it weird? Yes. And was it funny? It was funny for a bit, but it's about the most punk rock move. Maybe anyone's ever done at the induction and that I kind of respect. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That that's true. I guess I was thinking of it more of like a fan perspective, you know, the really loyal diehard rush fans that, that kind of, you know, really rallied to put them in there sure. and, and him kind of, you know, responding that way. I, I, I think if, had I been one of them, I might have been a little put off by that. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, that's a good... I had thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because okay. they really... Um, the fans really had to kind of fight for them to even get nominated for a long time. Sure. They yeah. were they topped a lot of lists of, you know, most snub bands and everything. So, Point. I don't know. I, I, can see, I can see your side just as well. But it, it yeah, definitely took... A, yeah, it definitely took some uh, cojones, like you said. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one thing I wish that the movie did have obviously not they couldn't in neil's kiss i would have liked to have heard a little bit from their from their wives and their families a little yeah. bit more I they interviewed like getty's mom obviously and and alex's parents but also hearing from maybe from their immediate family would have been kind of interesting too i thought the same thing yeah well they needed more screen time for gene simmons in the film. <laughs> <laughs> i forgot it yes that's right Let's talk about their kiss connection. Oh my gosh, uh-huh. <laughs> that that really caught me off guard. I don't know. I don't know if that's common knowledge that they toured with Kiss for you know for a, a good chunk of their early career, but mm-hmm. that that surprised me. I've heard them allude to that, and I actually um, you could tell that Getty was um, picking his words very carefully because <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kiss is, you know, Kiss has a reputation that is complete opposite of Rush's reputation. Uh-huh. But Getty came to their defense and said, "Look, you can say whatever you want about Kiss, but nobody works harder to entertain their get their mm-hmm. fans than that band does." And mm-hmm. that's true, you yeah. know, that is true. And you got to give it up for them. And I thought it was funny, you know, it, Gene being Gene. Thankfully, he wasn't, you know, on it as much as Jack Black. But when he does that. When he imitates Getty's voice, you know, the, oh, yeah, or whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. it's, that was hilarious. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was hilarious. And you're like, here's some, these are guys who know each other and get it. And yeah. that's fun to see, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. That was, 
I I would just I would have loved to have seen like a Rush Kiss double bill, just yes. for, just for the contrast of it. Well, and you know that given what's Gene's entire ethos about the rock and roll life, and that's yeah. what it's all about. <laughs> here are these very you know hyper intelligent guys just sitting in their rooms like watching reading TV. a book. Yeah, yeah, reading Ayn Rand, and Gene's like. Don't any of you want to get laid? Is yeah. that the point of all of this? You know? And they're like, my and wife would like, not be happy. Right. They're like, no, we're okay. You know. <laughs> I'm reading Tolkien. I'm right. good. You know? I'm almost done with this really great part. You go get a blowjob, Gene. I'm okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like an album together. Yes. Oh, man. That would be even weirder. Wow. <laughs> Maybe Getty Lee could fill in. On Kiss's next tour or something in a couple hey, songs. Dude, that'd be the weird. Elder meets the Necromancer. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, man. Uh, do you want to hear some of uh, Getty Lee's uh, voice criticisms that they had throughout the film? Oh, yes. His voice was likened to a, a hamster in overdrive, a rat caught in the ringer, the dead howling in Hades, Mickey Mouse <laughs> on helium. Strangling a hamster and a cat <laughs> being chased out the door with a blowtorch up its ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were never a critics band. No, no, no. A um, couple more things that I thought of too. Uh, one is that the the lyric notes that they kept showing that Neil had done add to the list of talents of Neil Peart is his art. You know. Those yeah. elaborate drawings, you know, each each song is not just jotted down on notepaper. It's all very there's you know a lot of design and animation in there, mm-hmm. and um, I thought that was really interesting too. That man, this guy can do just about anything, you know. He can draw, he can man. drum, he can yes. Yeah, those are pretty cool. Yeah, I would love to see those, like in a, in a gallery or something. I thought yeah, it was so interesting. They should make like a coffee table book or something. Good one, um, and another. Another thing I'll just admit right here, Neil was a dang good looking guy around the hold your fire era mm. when his hair is short. I, thin, I agree. He's wearing, yep. the, he's wearing the tank tops and he's drumming in the yes. Tank Steel video yes. and stuff. He was that pretty. Guy, there was there was some beefcake going on. Yes, he was a he, he was, was a, a buff dude. <laughs> exactly. He was a good looking dude, mm-hmm. which is not a thing you would say about most of those guys, <laughs> you know, over the course of their career. But man. Neil brought it back. He then. did. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if we were going to get into that. <laughs> once, yes. once he once he cut that weird mullet thing he had, and the yeah. mustache, it's like okay. <laughs> he struggled. Well, that handlebar mustache is pretty cool, though. I uh, okay, okay. It just looked like they, all three of you, them. You do you, Mike. Like, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like all three of them were on this endless cycle of trying to find their look. You know. Yeah. Whether it be, I mean, even Neil had like a rat tail in his hair for oh, a while. Oh, yeah, that you was know? that was rough. And Getty, of course, just constantly trying. What? I'm so weird looking. <laughs> how do, I'm not sure. How he's, how I, I'm not sure he's even gotten there yet. I I will. It's funny you said. I do think he's settled in. He does sort of longish hair, but it's pulled back from his face, and the John Lennon glasses, and a little taster under on his bottom lip. Uh-huh. That's as good as it's going to get for yeah. Getty Lee. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. you know but good yeah they were just all struggling for so long to find their look and so neil 
just killing it in the 80s, mm-hmm. looks-wise. But he's the last guy to, like, capitalize on that or, you know, do anything about it. But, yeah. You know, that, that was the key to their success in the 80s. It, was, it wasn't the music. It was all just sex appeal. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> Neil brought the chicks to the audience. He really did. He did. He did. That was his job. And and some of their outfits, I think. Oh, my gosh. I mean. The robes. Just a couple more things I wrote down that were quotes that really kind of, um, that I found to be very insightful or interesting was when, not to bring it down, but when they were talking about Neil's wife dying in that, you know, four-year period of darkness, Getty talking very sensitively about, you know, you don't want to do the wrong thing. You don't want to say the wrong thing. And I thought that's a really, you know, we all know that, but hearing it from Gettys in those words at that moment, it really drives the point home Mm. of uh, what he and they must have been going through trying to deal with that. And then I I really liked Neil coming back and saying, can I write rock lyrics like it's the most important thing in the world? Yeah, that was very powerful. Yeah. You know, yeah. Can I be a rock star like it's the most important thing in the world? And I thought, that is so true. Here's a guy whose internal morals and ideals are such that he knows that it's not, you know? Yeah. But that's their job and they do it well. And yeah, if you've just lost your entire family, your world's crumbled from underneath you, are you going to be able to go out and rock about, you know, write lyrics about necromancers and Bitor <laughs> and honeydew and stuff like it really matters? That can't be easy, you know, yeah. and yet he did it. And and it was important. You can tell that he'd do it when he was ready to do it. And he finally got there. Yeah. So I thought those were some really insightful thoughts just about life in general, you know. Yeah. It, well, it seemed actually after that happened that he was able to harness that negative energy into into that art form for him and maybe maybe True. that was part of the healing process too you know True. yeah good point yeah but yeah that was a very powerful moment and especially when the you know in the in the film when they took time to say you know like once our kids were born our priorities completely shift you know mm-hmm. rush, rush wasn't the end-all be-all anymore you know yeah. That's, that's yeah we had a new sense of of purpose yeah i don't know how many other rock bands especially from that era would say that and have the um, would talk walk the walk as well. Mm-hmm. Everybody says their families are important to them, but that doesn't stop them from hooking up with groupies or yeah, whatever else. Speak you know? louder than words. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> you know those guys meant it, right? Like I, I don't know if you saw this, but you know um, Daryl Hall just you know made that big announcement that he said he slept with I think like two thousand women or something like that. Oh come on, man! I yeah. love Daryl Hall. I don't want to know, know that. I know. I know it was, I know I do too. It it was, I just saw this like two days ago. It's like Daryl Hall makes announcement that I'm like, come on. Some things are just better left unsaid. (laughs) Yeah. Good one. (laughs) They did include some uh, pretty good footage as like a big rush fan. I hadn't seen until that film came out. Like Mm -hmm. it was interesting uh, seeing the footage of them with John Rutsey at the drums. Mm -hmm. Ah, Yes. That was another thing going back to Sam Dunn and the whole style of the movie and the understatedness of it is the um, even the the editing, like the fades in and out between old classic photos and stuff. It wasn't we're so used to watching things hyper, you know, kinetically edited so that it's like short attention span theater or whatever, probably because of MTV and all that. But I felt like this movie settled in and took its time and even when they're talking or they're playing music and it's showing just you know a collage of photographs behind the scenes 
even that was sort of edited and paced very nicely. It never, it never revved up. I never felt like the movie was in a hurry. I just mm-hmm. felt like we were spending a very nice, you know, afternoon with these guys. And like I said, when it was over, I, every time I watch it, I'm ready to turn it right back around and start over again because I just miss them. Yeah. I miss spending, you know, 106 minutes with these guys. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels so much shorter than that. <laughs> you know, it feels yeah. like it's a half an well, hour, you know? Yes. I can't really think of any other rock docs that really have made this big of an impression on me. There are no. lots of other good, good to great ones, but this one is really kind of in its own echelon. I agree. Well, the story so of the Eagles is. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the story of the Eagles is a pretty interesting documentary because it's like kind of the opposite of this one a bit. <laughs> sure. It's it's interesting because how so eager driven that Don Henley and Glenn Fry are in that. Oh my gosh. It's so true. I have to admit I've never I haven't seen that one. <laughs> oh man. You're up. I I sort of have I have a bit of an allergy to the Eagles. So So do I. Do you well, look, okay. <laughs> okay. I I don't like the Eagles. And this movie will confirm your feelings about okay. the Eagles. All right. So yeah. much. You after you watch it, you could like put a flag up in your front yard and be like, I told you the Eagles are lame. <laughs> You know, I'm going to watch it tonight. <laughs> Good. The whole second half is kind of almost an infomercial. It's not yeah. as interesting, uh, but the first part is uh, fascinating. These guys are just, they're fascinating in their narcissism. And they, okay, this is getting into a whole thing, but I feel like they just simply don't have the talent to justify their narcissism. Oh, amen <laughs> to that, brother. <laughs> amen to that. I, are you an Eagles fan, Mike? I mean, I like some of their stuff. I'm more of a Joe Walsh fan. Okay. He, Joe Walsh doesn't meet those other guys. Yeah. No. Yeah, he was too good for the for, for Eagles. Excuse me, not the for Eagles. Eagles. Yeah. Right. Get right. Uh, oh my god. We're gonna god. say the Eagles. Right. Just to <laughs> irritate Glenn. Good. <laughs> so true. Oh my god. Any final things you want to add before we wrap up tonight? Uh, go see it if you haven't seen it. Yeah, available I, uh, on Netflix and um, highly recommended even for the non-Rush fans. In fact, if anything, especially for the non-Rush fans. Yeah. I Because as I said earlier, I just think it's a wonderful movie. Whether you like that music or not, you will come away appreciating them mm-hmm. and the cinematic experience. You don't even, who cares if you like Rush or not. In fact, if that has been a deterrent from you seeing this movie, don't do it. Just go see the movie. Yep. Don't worry about that part. Yeah, you know, At, I, that's really well said. I think if you're just looking for decent insight into into really decent people, I think this is you, yes. you can't really get any better than that. No, that's it. So yeah, well, thank you guys. This was really this was really great. We covered a lot. Do you guys want to do any um any promo? Michael Bagford, where where can we find you on the social media? I'm mostly on Twitter at Michael Bagford, but I'm also on Instagram at mm. Bagford Michael. <laughs> You're tricking us here, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you- I've been threatening to do a podcast, but I haven't done one yet. Um, mm. I don't know when one's going to come out at this point. <laughs> okay, well, keep us posted. Yeah. You're participating in the um, album a day thing, right? Yeah, the, that's right. For the rock out for the album a day. And you've been doing it for how many years? Have, has that been going on? Uh, this will be the fourth year. Wow. Goodness. My gosh. That's now, amazing. one year I did do singles in 2018, just did an album a week, but mm-hmm. I have been doing album a day uh, 2017 in the last two years. 
Records. So still going strong. Yeah. yeah. And now and now the uh, originator has joined back in. Pat Francis, who started it, mm-hmm. kind of was on sabbatical for a couple of years for that. And he's he's back in it now. So that's pretty cool. And John Lammer, where where can we find you? Um, on Twitter, we're at the Hustle Pod. I will admit I'm not totally, totally active on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm there, but I don't, it's not my primary thing, uh, but on, we're far more active on Facebook. You can just find our page, like it, follow us. We do a daily, something I started doing a few months ago is we've been doing a daily poll where we, I pit two bands against each other and just see what mm-hmm. people like. It's uh, you know, it's not much, but it builds engagement. And I, yeah. anyone who like us, who's a music fan, we love provocative little polls like that, you know, voting for people. So <laughs> it, I, it um, brings the heat. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It brings the heat. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, and then we put out new episodes every Tuesday. You can find us on whatever podcatcher you use. Thank you for all your amazing podcast work you do. I, I think oh. this will, um, you know, get a couple more people in your audience, and because it's, <laughs> it's pretty great. And well, um, thank you. You're welcome. If you're looking to uh, get in contact with me, my Twitter is at. Uh, Rock Movies Pod. My personal Twitter handle is at Josh F six one eight. And you can also email the show at movies at rockpod at gmail.com. And also leave a review on, I think it's what's now Apple Podcasts, right? It's not iTunes anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps people find the show in positive, negative, whatever you feel like I'm good with. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for listening. And, and guys, this is so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do this with me and and, and celebrate Rush and, and um, those amazing musicians and the memory of Neil Peart. I'm sure that their music is going to last forever. Thank you guys so much, and um, I hope you have a good evening. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ted. Living 